Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the LSE Public Lecture Series. My name is Jan Sklinski, and I'm an assistant professor at LSE Law School, and I have the great pleasure of being your chair for this event. We are honored and delighted to have Professor Wojciech Sadurski with us tonight. Wojciech is Chalice Chair in Jurisprudence at the University of Sydney and Professor at the University of Warsaw's Center for Europe. He was previously Professor and Head of the Department at the European University Institute in Florence. He's a distinguished scholar whose work has been enormously influential in a number of fields, but especially in constitutional law and legal theory. In May of 2019, Wojciech published a book called Poland's Constitutional Breakdown. In it, he describes the anti-constitutional populist backsliding that has taken in Poland since 2015, dissects its root causes and examines its theoretical implications for the way in which we think about phenomena like populism. Kim Scheppler wrote that the book is the kind of legal thriller you wish were fiction, and I couldn't agree more. Um, if you haven't already done so, I warmly recommend you read it. Um, content aside, it comes with the additional benefit of a beautiful cover. Um, we have invited Wojciech to give us an update on the situation in Poland. Now, you might think that two and a half years is not a lot of time in the life of a state, and it certainly isn't, at least usually not, in the life of an academic book. Yet so many things have happened in the meantime that we felt it was important um, to hear what has changed since the book came out, where we are at present, and what the future might hold. Before I hand over to our guest, let me just quickly explain the format of tonight's lecture. Wojciech will speak for around 30 minutes, which will be followed by a Q&A. You can ask questions by using the Q&A button that should be on the bottom of this Zoom page. And I will try my best to collect them all and read them out to Wojciech. I invite everybody to take part in this, especially the students who might be listening. And without further ado, Wojciech, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jan, for this extremely kind introduction. And in particular, of course, for inviting me and for initiating the whole idea of this meeting and also for, for moderating it. Uh, my big thanks to the entire LSE Law School, where I have so many friends, and also to the uh, events team, uh, and in particular to Molly Reed, who had been very patient and helpful in preparing the logistics of this meeting. So talking about the logistics, I will now do my best to share screen and to go straight into the PowerPoint. Uh, <laughs> just, oh no, it's, okay. So, uh, so the, in, this, in, this, in this presentation, I'm not so much going to talk about the book itself, but just as Jan has uh, hinted uh, about 
on, my, on, on the actual developments on the ground over the last three years or so. The book was published in mid-2019, so I more or less finished my research and account up to the end of 2018. And as Jan just has said, many things happened. Unfortunately, uh, not much happened in a positive way. But before I move on to this, let me just say that in this presentation, I won't be focusing on any detail. Uh, I will be rather presenting an overview, uh, a sort of bird's eye view. And the bird here is instructed not to go into any specifics and details, but rather, you know, to give a general panorama of what is going on. I hope that you will excuse me, perhaps even thank me for avoiding the detail, but I'll be happy to go back into it uh, in the Q&A part. Now, uh, as an author, I'm happy that the book retains its validity, at least as far as the account is concerned. Although as a poll, I'm of course uh, unhappy about it and would rather see my book as merely a historical account of a very unhappy uh, but finished uh, episode in Polish recent history. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, and what has been going on since uh, 2019 can be summarized in a nice Polish formula, which in Polish sounds, to samo ale jeszcze bardziej, and in, which can roughly be translated into the same, but even more so. And of course, the situation on the ground uh, has not been in any way final. There is no closure. We do not know exactly what will happen, uh, but no optimistic predictions are really warranted. It's almost, it's almost like in this bad old joke, which Jan probably knows about this uh, ambulance in the middle of the night in Moscow, which is rushing through the streets of Moscow. And at a certain point, a patient in this ambulance who, who was in a coma wakes up and sees these strong, huge male nurses around him looking at him. So he's asking them, where are you taking me? And one of them answers, well, we are taking you to a morgue. And he said, to a morgue? Why to a morgue? You know, I'm not dead yet. Yes, but we haven't arrived there yet, says the nurse. So this is a little bit, uh, I'm afraid, an introduction to my story about present Poland. We are not there yet. And we do not know exactly where uh, we are moving. Now, the most important thing that has happened since the last. Uh, now, can you can you actually see the PowerPoint slide, uh, Jan? Because yes, yes, we can. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, all right. So, the most important thing that has happened is that uh, the Law and Justice Party, which I'll be referring to by its Polish uh, acronym PIS, P-I-S, which stands for Law and Justice, had seen its rule reconfirmed, reaffirmed in the elections of 2019 and 2020. I'll put to one side, to other sets of elections, the European elections and local elections, but in these two most important ones, that is the parliamentary and presidential elections, 
piece uh, won. It won first in the elect parliamentary elections of October 2019, whereas you can see uh, the ruling party has obtained majority in the lower chamber of parliament, all powerful lower chamber of parliament, even though it received slightly fewer of row votes than the uh, combined democratic opposition parties, but they were combined only in a statistical sense, not in a political sense. And since under Polish system of proportionate representation, there is a strong bonus for big parties and for really unified coalitions, uh, the law and justice, in fact, as a coalition of right-wing parties, but for all practical purposes, we may refer to law and justice party because the minor coalition partners are really very, very, uh, very minor, those ju junior partners. So the, uh, the, uh, mm, the overall row vote for those uh, opposition parties was slightly higher, but peace retained its majority in the lower chamber. It has lost majority in the Senate, where the opposition prevails by the narrowest of margins, but it is it is significant, but politically speaking, really not decisive because of the relatively insignificant constitutional role of the uh, lower chamber, of the sorry, of the Senate. And one important thing is that the extreme right wing party is sort of equivalent of the old Jobbik in Hungary, uh, entered uh, the parliament with 7% of seats. Uh, and, this and the same result was more or less confirmed in the presidential elections where the incumbent Andrzej Duda won in the second uh, round, won very, very marginally, but he has won uh, against the uh, liberal democratic candidate, Rafał Trzaskowski. So, uh, so the uh, Lion and Justice Party retained all its main centers of power. And one must say that these elections were, were by and large free and no discernible electoral fraud in vote counting really can be found. Whether they were fair is another matter. Uh, there are at least three reasons to doubt in their fairness. One is a huge, unashamed, uh, use of state funds for the electoral campaign in favor of peace parties. Second, it's complete and total pro-peace propaganda by the so-called public media, in particular by state television. And as we have just learned very recently, literally a few weeks ago, uh, already at this, at this stage of the elections, this uh, spyware program called Pegasus, of which I'm sure you've heard also in the UK, has been used to hack phones of the uh, key members of the campaign for the opposition parties. So that it was sort of like Watergate type things without, unfortunately, Watergate consequences. Now, as a result of all that, we may now talk about the system which has emerged 
in recent years, already after the uh, publication of my book, as that of consolidated authoritarian populism. And all three words in this aggregate characterization are equally important. First, it is consolidated in a technical sense used in political science where an authoritarian party which uh, rules uh, in at least two consecutive electoral terms may be called consolidated. Um, and it has very significant non-technical consequences uh, of at least three types, institutional, political, and psychological. Institutionally speaking, uh, the institutions, illiberal institutions become entrenched, as I will uh, talk about a little bit by the end of this presentation. And perhaps more importantly, what may be called democratic institutional memories about unwritten rules by which various crucial institution work sort of fade away from collective memory. And in particular, it may be shown in Poland in the case of constitutional tribunal, which in the past, regardless of various objections, which many of us, including myself, had about its various rulings, it was a really noble, honest institution of high integrity. Now it is really a playground for legal barbarians who get in there uh, as a reward for their political loyalism. The second, uh, dimension of consolidation is political one. And it applies, for example, to the opposition. As you know very well, if the opposition parties stay too long in the uh, opposition benches, it brings about certain frustration, demoralization. I mean, you cannot really uh, feed yourself from the positions as, uh, as opposition MPs, etc., And then brings about all sorts of uh, deformations and weaknesses in the opposition. And there are some very important uh, phenomena in the field of social psychology. People start learning to live with the authoritarianists, start to accommodate and adjust their lives to it. For very young people, it's the only system which they remember as a as sort of mature individual. And there is this tendency, because we have a limited capacity for horrible news, there is this tendency of normalizing subsequent abuses, something that Daniel Moynihan described in mid-1960s as defining violence down, talking about violence in New York in particular, may be paraphrased as defining pathology, political pathology down. So that's about consolidation. It's an authoritarian populism. Of course, not every populism is authoritarian, just as not every authoritarianism is populist. So it is authoritarian populism in the sense that all power in Poland is now concentrated in the hands of one man, party leader Jarosław Kaczyński. And if there are some powers which he does not exercise, it's only because he has delegated them to others. And he may at any stage withdraw uh, this delegation. So he's not constrained by any principle of separation of powers, of checks and balances, of interinstitutional accountability. 
uh, and by any constraints, including legal constraints. So there is no rule of law which would make him uh, constrain his uh, actions because they are illegal. If that's the case, then either he breaches the law or he changes the law. And finally, it's consolidated authoritarian populism. And in my book, I had adopted a somewhat non-orthodox or non-conventional, non-dominant, I would say, uh, definition of populism. Uh, I'm not really using populism, the word populism in the same sense in which it was used by Jan Werner Müller, probably the most influential currently writer on, uh, on populism, where he understands it in terms of certain dominant discourse, discourse of us versus of them, or discourse of us representing the entire undifferentiated society. Now, in contrast to Jan Werner, I'm much more interested in what uh, populists do rather than what they say. And perhaps because I'm a, I'm a lawyer rather than political philosopher, I'm much more interested in the actual socioeconomic, but also institutional changes. Mm. And that is perhaps also because I'm mainly interested in populism in power, ruling populism, populism rather than populism only uh, struggling for power. So I can see actual how uh, populists in reality practice what they preach. Uh, and so uh, Polish authoritarianism is populist in the sense that it tries to be attempts and does it best to be popular, to be liked, perhaps even loved, which can be seen among other things in its socioeconomic policy and in its flag uh, policy called 500 plus. This 500 is Polish currency, Polish zloty, uh, which has been enormously popular and probably which has been one of the main factors responsible for its uh, for its victory, both in the first place and in the re-elections, which is basically a way of cash transfers, which is, I think, a typically populist policy rather than building public goods, good public education, good public hospitals, good public welfare, etc. cetera, uh, the state simply gives away cash and asks people to seek those goods in the market. It is, it is populist because it is easy, it's simple, people like it, and they get sort of instant satisfaction without get, getting the long-term sort of good social democratic type of effects. But also in my book, I suggested that there is a certain unfortunate bias in contemporary studies of populism. That is that too many scholars look at the, in explaining the causes for populism, for successes of populism, they look at the demand side rather than supply side of politics. And of course the demand is important, but I think that supply side has been underestimated and in particular, uh, that the demand side, the sort of demands that the society puts on the politicians sort of 
has underdetermined successes of populism in countries such as Poland. So we need to be much more careful about the supply side, about the sort of programs that the populists supply uh, to the society, often creating demand or at least amplifying, sort of bolstering the uh, expectations that are present, but quite sometimes hidden in the society. So uh, there are three main components of the supply side, which explained both the initial victories in 2015, but also the endurance of populism uh, after the second round of election. First is a strong anti-elite program, which may sound, which, which, which is good enough for the first election, which may sound sort of ironic uh, for the party which had been in power for for previous years, now six years. But somehow this, uh, this paradox escapes many people and Kaczynski very successfully exploits his self-portrait as someone uh, who is an outsider, who is anti-establishment, who is outside the mainstream, who is embattled, a little bit like Donald Trump who managed to present himself as a non-member uh, of the elite. And that has been a successful part of the narrative of the ruling party, uh, especially since as many sociologists show, the main support, not the only, but the main electoral support for peace comes from people who in many ways are underprivileged economically, educationally, culturally, etc. The second uh, aspect of this winning supply is very strong xenophobia, nationalism, nativism, uh, anti-others, anti-internal others, say LGBT groups, uh, ethnic minorities, even though, though they are very small, but say, people of German pedigree in Silesia, but especially anti-external others, especially anti-immigrants, which was a huge winning card in 2015, and which we are observing right now at the eastern border of Poland with the intended influx or feared influx of refugees from the Middle East. And finally, something that can be called in a very broad sense, anti-modernism. That is, uh, distaste to quote unquote fashions, such as anti-discrimination, feminism, uh, legal recognition of LGBT, uh, and at the same time, very strong attachment to traditional hierarchies, authorities, in particular to the church, and in particular to Polish Roman Catholic Church, which among Roman Catholic churches in Europe is probably by far the most reactionary and, and, and traditionalist. Uh, and, that base, and that triggers a question about to what extent we can still talk about populism, and at least in its Polish version as being thinly 
ideological, quote unquote, which is the conventional characterization for populism given by many scholars of populism, that it's quote unquote thinly ideological, that is basically pragmatic and that it adopts whatever ideological formula uh, serves it. Nevertheless, the recent years, the years after publication of my book, I think has have seen a strong move towards a more and more dogmatic ideological character, especially of this religious nature, uh, for a very simple reason that the symbiosis between the ruling party and the Polish Catholic Church has been mutually beneficial and the only losers were the taxpayers. But the church has benefited from huge amount of state subsidies while the party benefited from a constant propaganda, partisan propaganda from church pulpits every Sunday. Then, uh, let me move on to more legal issues. Uh, and let me talk a little bit about the institutional dimension. Now, uh, what is characteristic of Polish brand of authoritarian populism, in slight contrast to Hungary, for example, where Orban with a constitutional majority could have changed a number of institutions, for example, abolish Supreme Court and establish something, some sort of pale version of the Supreme Court called Kuriat. In Poland, uh, the authoritarians maintained the old institution. So it also made the transformations more obscure to the outside observers, because it seems that, you know, it's a business as usual. So the institutions have not been abolished. They have been, as is a popular formula, hollowed out. But this hollowing out metaphor needs to be unpacked. And I would unpack it through the following five devices of this hollowing out, uh, which I will very briefly now show. Uh, the first is capture, the most simple. I mean, this is basically purging of the institutions of the old personnel and staffing them with new people who now become loyalists and serve the interests of the party. What happened with the Constitutional Tribunal, but also Electoral Commission, Central Bank, etc., cetera, uh, are the examples of that. The second is duplication. Some institutions are maintained, but there are new parallel institutions uh, created with sort of overshadow those older constitutional institutions, so-called National Media Council, for example, which has basically sidelined a constitutional uh, broadcasting board uh, and which basically has most of the powers of that other institution. The third one is erosion. You maintain the institutions, but you deplete them of their competences and part your funds, which was the case of the Polish Ombudsman Office, uh, which has not been captured even until now by the ruling party, but they get less and less budget from year to year because that is decided by the lower chamber. The fourth one is quote unquote migration, that is institution remain, but are moved to another institutional context in which they become fully dependent to the executive. That's the case, for instance, of the state prosecutor's office, which became, sorry, public prosecutor 
offices which became now part of the structure of the Ministry of Justice. And that creates for them completely different patterns of dependence and accountability. And the five example, this is not an exhaustive list, but the five example is internal restructuring. So again, from the outside, the institution looks the same, but from the inside, it's completely different. That's the case of the Supreme Court, for example, the photo of which you can see now on this slide, or of the National Council of Judiciary. Now, talking about law, uh, authoritarian populists in Poland are not anti, are not sort of legal nihilists. They actually like using the law. So they are not Leninists in the sense that law does not matter, but they use it in an instrumental way as, uh, as a tool which should be changed whenever it doesn't suit their political purposes. For example, I think the law about the Supreme Court has been changed over the last few years, eight or nine times, whenever they realize that, you know, a better legal regulations would facilitate their purge of old judges. They use defamation suits and libel against their opponents, political opponents, while at the same time providing legal immunity to themselves, including to the uh, top leader Kaczynski, who was properly suspected of very, very high volume type of corruption actions. And they use the so-called disciplinary system of prosecuting judges, which in fact is a way of legal harassment and persecution of the intransigent, that is, you know, independent judges and also prosecutors. These are, these, these are just the examples. Now I'm moving to the end. So let me say a few words about the European dimension of it. In my, in my book, there is a chapter called Europe to the Rescue with a question mark. And sadly, after the book has appeared, there was a very, very dramatic escalation and intensification of the tension between Polish authorities and the European Union, which sort of got its act together. Uh, many of my friends and colleagues in this industry of EU law uh, complain about utter inefficiency of the EU, uh, saying that it is acting according to the to the pattern of too little and too late. And to some extent they are right, but I'm much more sanguine in my opinion about it. As long as we, uh, uh, as we uh, have a relatively low, that is realistic expectations about what the supranational structures such as the EU can do about democratic backsliding in one of its member states. Remember that even some federal states have problems in such an oversight in their own states. Look at the United States and voting rights. Uh, and of course, the EU is not a federal state. And secondly, we should look at the toolkit that the EU has in its sort of holistically, uh, rather than one tool looked at at a time. So if we put together those various instruments, including the purely political instruments, such as Article 7 procedure, which is pending, but which does 
radiate upon other actions, for example, opinions of the Advocate General in Court of Justice. On the other hand, a purely legal or judicial instruments such as the judgments of the Court of Justice, and not only in response to infringement actions by the committee, by, sorry, by the commission, but perhaps even more importantly, for reasons I'm happy to discuss in the Q&A, uh, in response to the preliminary reference questions by judges from Poland, and various in-between measures of both political and legal character, such as the so-called rule of law framework, and most recently conditionality regulation about the uh, recovery fund. I think that they all, and if we add to it this other European institution that is Council of Europe with European Court of Human Rights, which had in, handed down recently some very, very important judgments on Poland, then we'll see that there is a certain critical mass which exerts strong pressure for, uh, on Polish authorities, even if it will not in itself, as it can't bring democracy back to Poland, it certainly increases political costs and sometimes even financial costs for the current regime. And how effective it is may be judged perhaps paradoxically by how nervous the reaction of Polish authorities was, including Polish government more or less compelling the uh, completely dependent to its constitutional tribunal to, uh, to hand down two judgments, quote unquote, invalidating some articles of the Treaty of European Union, uh, if understood in a certain way, which of course is anathema to, to membership in the EU, to the point in which some scholars in the West started talking, well, does it amount to a de facto poll exit, sort of the Polish equivalent of Brexit? Uh, has Poland left the EU? And of course, the answer from purely legal point of view is no, there is no such thing as a tacit use of Article 50. So my formula when thinking about what are real plans of Kaczynski and the ruling elite in Poland about membership in the EU, uh, I think that they do not want to withdraw Poland from the EU. There are Polish societies too Euro-friendly for it. They rather want to withdraw EU from Poland. That is to reduce it to some sort of bankomat or ATM, but without the oversight over behavior under Article 2 values and in particular those of the rule of law. Coming to the very end of my presentation, suppose there are some people in the audience who are not particularly interested in Poland as such. Hurtful though it may sound to Jan and to me, but there may be such people, but they want to use it as a case study for something broader, for what general lessons we can draw from this sorry development. I suggest there are at least three, which I'll only mention without developing. The third one is that Poland is an exemplification, almost paradigmatic exemplification of the most important version of contemporary uh, decline of democracy or democratic backsliding. It, that is the one which is executed by elected authoritarians. That is authoritarians which have electoral mandate, but which during the first, uh, their first term and especially second term, 
sort of destroy democracy from the inside by A, enlarging the powers of the executive beyond those tolerable in constitutional democracy. And secondly, by changing the electoral rules of the game so that the playing field is tilted to their favor. That leads to the second point, and that is that the idea made popular by Farid Zakaria and then which made fantastic career that of illiberal democracy is is in the end is meaningless. It's sort of really internal contradiction, not as a conceptual matter. Conceptually, you may imagine a democratic but rights uh, violating regimes, but it doesn't work like that in reality because uh, these illiberal democracies will have all the incentives as identified in the first point of destroying and eroding democracy from the inside. And that leads me to the third point, and that is that uh, the sort of optimistic idea uh, encapsulated in the words of transition, transitional constitution, transitional democracy, broadly transitional paradigm, which many of us, and I'm using the first person plural advisedly, say around 1990s, uh, with all the countries around the world emerging from communism, from military regimes, from apartheid, etc., that there is a relatively simple trajectory towards democratic or liberal democracy that we really have to unfortunately consider now as wishful thinking, as a very naive optimism, which has not been vindicated, and that many of the ex-totalitarian, authoritarian, etc. states may be stuck at a certain hybrid plateau, which is neither democratic nor fully non-democratic. So that's, uh, I promised I would speak for the 35 minutes and my timer tells me I'm there. So let me just use a commercial break between now and the discussion. And and uh, as a personal privilege, let me do a moment of self-promotion. And I would like to say that much of what I've been talking about here, but in a broader and more comparative way will appear in a book which I have written for Cambridge University Press, which should be out in a few months, which is called a pandemic of populists. So there will be also a lot about COVID, of course. And I hope that this beautiful artwork by Giorgio de Chirico will feature on its cover. So recommend it. Thank you very much. And now it's on to you, Jan. Thank you very, very much for this lecture, um, which was in equal measure thought-provoking and I'm sure uh, upsetting for many viewers. Uh, It's great to see that you're sticking to the beautiful covers uh, for all of your publications uh, in this area. Um, Now, we have some time uh, for questions. Um, So please type any question you might have uh, into the chat. I can see some people have started doing that already, which is fantastic. And while our listeners are doing that, um, let me maybe start with what I guess is a um, personal question. In the foreword to the book, um, you write that for you, Poland is not just a case study. Poland is your country, which you love. Now, you've had very different roles in this um, crisis as a citizen who who observed it, um, as a scholar who's commented on it, 
And as you've showed to us, also as a defendant in government-led trials against you. Now, I was wondering, um, has it been difficult to navigate these different roles? How, how have they affected writing a book like this? Well, no, these roles haven't affected my writing at all, I think. If, even if I were spared my legal adventures with uh, Polish State TV and with Peace, I think I would have written exactly the same that I've written. In fact, I had written my book before these things happened, although I tried to be in some way present in Polish public life, mainly in, in media, including social media. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to go personal on, on these particular legal issues, which I'm happy to report are developing in a very good direction. Uh, but, uh, I basically, as I was writing this book, uh, even if I wanted, I wouldn't know what it means to write a neutral book. I wanted to write an accurate book, a book which is uh, correct in every statement and which does not say overlook issues which may not support my general propositions. But I knew very well where I where I stand on these issues. And I, I didn't even intend to be neutral uh, between authoritarians and Democrats. Uh, I don't think it's possible. And if it were possible, I don't think it is wise, at least not for everyone. But I hope that the book is, uh, at least I tried, matches the requirements of uh, correctness and objectivity. There's another passage where you warn that no institutional design is immune to attack when there are not enough people sufficiently committed to defending and respecting institutions. And I think many people would agree with that. But um, do you think in hindsight that a different institutional constitutional design could have made things a little harder for the current government? Oh yes, a little harder, sure. Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we can always find some aspects of the constitution which would increase the costs for the uh, uh, rogue politicians of breaching them. So that we can, for example, imagine that if the judges of constitutional tribunal were elected, say, in the US way, where you have to have a consensus between the president and the um, Senate, or in an Italian slash French way, where a fraction of judges is uh, elected or appointed by a different institutions, and so on, it would make a little harder, uh, but only a little, uh, because in the end, constitutional constraints are just parchment barriers. And if there isn't a sufficient sense of what constitutes a breach, uh, then nothing really can prevent the rulers from breaching it. So unfortunately, it's only a piece of paper. I mean, look, uh, look at the, going back to the example of constitutional tribunal, con uh, judges to the 
top federal constitutional court in Germany are basically elected in the same way, formally speaking, uh, as those in, uh, in Poland and Hungary. That is by a simple majority in the parliament. And yet the outcomes are so different because it's a matter of certain constitutional culture and also extra constitutional constraints. Unfortunately, unfortunately, they were not sufficient in the case of Poland. Okay, I can see plenty of uh, questions in the chat already. Um, so let me read out a few of these and I'll start um, with a question by uh, Kamil Jonski, who is uh, joining us from the University of Łódź in Poland. Um, he asks, is it likely that the developments in Poland will uh, provide a boost to the process of constitutionalization in the EU, in particular, the acknowledgement that fundamental rights ought to encompass each and every aspect of EU citizens' lives and be directly applied by every court. Um, so um, in another sentence, he's saying, are we on the road towards an EU-wide decentralized constitutional controlled based on the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights and um, domestic Kazanian uh, constitutional courts have just become obsolete. Yeah, so there are two very important aspects in Dr. Jonski's question. When it comes to the EU, I believe that probably a much more likely legal vehicle of that type of oversight that you and I would wish for is not so much Charter of Fundamental Rights, but rather uh, articles of the treaty, such as Article 2, 4, 7, and 19, especially 19, which talks about effective legal remedies. Because I think that, the, that there simply will never be sufficient consensus among the states to extend legally even the charter upon the states as such. And those so-called horizontal principles, I think Article 51, if I remember of the Charter, which basically tell us, it applies basically only to the institutions of the EU and to the states only insofar as they implement EU law, I think are there to stay. But I think much higher potential in the use, especially of those substantive uh, principles of EU treaty, uh, because this is because there are no of these sort of equivalents of, of horizontality, so-called. So that especially Article 2 with the fundamental values, the rule of law, democracy, and human rights, and Article 19 with the uh, effective legal remedy, which is understood as demanding also independent courts with independent judges, are legally speaking a better way. And uh, now, uh, as you know, because I think we had discussed this matter before, I fully agree that the way for domestic constitutional review in uh, European states, especially including in Central and Eastern Europe, especially when facing the effective uh, disappearance of 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 really effective constitutional courts in countries such as Poland and Hungary is through dispersed uh, judicial review. That is that each judge should feel herself empowered uh, to disregard a statute which she considers 
unconstitutional. And I think there are full constitutional grounds for it because the constitution of Poland says that the constitution is being applicable directly. And therefore each judge can place herself in the position of, of uh, uh, Judge Marshall in Marbury v. Madison and ask themselves the question, but is it really constitutional? Um, now we have uh, a number of questions on, on the EU and the EU's role in this uh, whole saga. And I'd like to maybe combine two of these. So John Newham from London asks, um, how much influence um, does the EU have over the changes in Poland? Now, I think you've addressed this to some extent in your talk already, but let me combine it um, with another question, which was asked by um, uh, Professor Jacques Ziller, um, which is, um, is the European pressure um, pushing towards nationalist reactions in part of the public, or is it having a positive impact on public opinion? Thank you very much. So uh, as to John's question, I would say uh, the influence is not insignificant. Sorry about double negation, but it's reasonably strong. For example, look at a particular case study, you know, when Poland in 2017 adopted this law, which would purge Supreme Court under the guise of lowering of the retirement age, and they just wanted to follow the Hungarian script. Uh, the Court of Justice say, no, you can do it at the bequest of the infringement action by the commission. And as by December of that year, the judgment on merits of the Court of Justice was about to be handed down, the government quickly withdrew. It wanted to save face and to be shown we are not doing it under the pressure from the Court of Justice. We just rethought the matter. But the Court of Justice in any event decided wisely, I think, to uh, pronounce itself on this. So uh, when, when you look at the recent judgments of the Court of Justice, I mean, no doubt the judgment of 15th July uh, last year on the so-called disciplinary chamber, which is a real star chamber to harass judges, uh, had enormous effect upon Polish politics, even though this, the, the chamber has not been formally speaking uh, abolished or dismantled. Nevertheless, you know, it has gone through various stages of being suspended. I mean, the government doesn't know what to do about it, what they know is that as long as, the, as this chamber exists, probably they won't get any money from the recovery fund. So I think that it has had a more significant impact than many of the skeptics uh, uh, about the, not skeptics about the EU, they are EU enthusiasts, but skeptics about the feasibility of EU pressure would admit. And that brings me to Jacques question to Professor Jacques Ziller, my good friend. Uh, so uh, look, there is of course this argument about European pressure producing backlash and nationalistic, uh, nationalistic reactions. And there may be some phenomena, for sure there are some, especially in government propaganda. But I think by and large, it, is the, it would be the passivity of the EU and failure to do it that would create higher resentment in Poland 
than, than the opposite, that is to do more. I mean, many people, many Democrats, and, and, and statistically speaking, they are probably now in majority, would be very upset about the EU doing nothing. So the backlash argument, it is, I, you know, it is of course an argument which is very happily used by the apologetic by the apologists for the regime. They say, well, the EU cannot really intervene because it will create uh, resentment and reaction. Frankly, Jacques, I don't buy it. And I don't think it is confirmed in the case of Poland. Now, um, following up from this, we have a few questions on the recent jurisprudence of the Polish Constitutional Tribunal. And one comes from uh, Marta Stempniewska, um, who is from LSE and the University of Warsaw. And she is asking, what are your projections for the government's path after the Constitutional Tribunal's decision of uh, October 7th, given that um, Prime Minister Morawiecki has made it plain that peace is not contemplating a exit. Um, and Marta says that meanwhile, we have the problem of day-to-day uh, -day work um, of the courts, what about the principle of uh, supremacy? What about its future use by Polish courts and the way in which they can act as European courts? And a shorter but um, um, very uh, interesting questions, which uh, we've been discussing a lot here at LSE, uh, posed by one of our students, Luke Costello. Luke is asking, um, does the recent um, uh, judgment or do the recent uh, actions of the Polish Constitutional Tribunal concerning the primacy of EU law cast a dark light on constitutional pluralism and its place within the EU? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe let me start with the second question, because I myself, I'm, I'm not a great fan of, uh, of constitutional pluralism. And if this so-called judgment, because it's not a legally valid judgment, but, but so-called judgment of October last year indeed could cast a dark light on constitutional pluralism, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Because I think that the constitutional pluralism, if you excuse me, a certain exaggeration became the last means of scoundrels within the EU, uh, with its associated concept of constitutional identity. Both these concepts have very noble background and pedigree. They are just saying, well, we in Europe, we have many legitimate ways of attaining rule of law and democracy. And this is our wealth and asset rather than aberration. But it has been used mostly in recent years by courts in countries such as Romania, Hungary, and in particular in Poland to resist any oversight by the EU institutions, especially under Article 2, that is fundamental values. So yes, it contributes, this, this so-called judgment contributes, I think, to discrediting an idea of constitutional pluralism, at least in the version in which it can serve as a propaganda tool for authoritarians within the EU. And to, Ms., uh, to Marta Stempniewska's point about what will happen after the judgment of October, which I'll explain to those who may not know the details, has basically explicitly said that articles four, 
in, sorry, Article One about uh, the ever stronger uh, union. Article Two with its rule of law. Article Nineteen with its effective legal protection, etc. In so far as they can serve, I'm paraphrasing uh, the concept of supremacy of EU law over Polish constitutional law or unconstitutional in Poland, uh, which is just incredible. They didn't say that under some interpretations, they just said insofar as they do it and they do it. So, you know, they are unconstitutional within certain range and no, no member state can ever say that. And now you are asking what is, what is government going to do about it? Indeed, the government has a very big problem. Fortunately, it's not my problem, but I can understand that they brought themselves into certain total fiasco. And Orban, who is so much smarter than Polish rulers, would have never done it. And of course, it's not a tribunal's judgment. It's a decision, political decision by Polish government. And it sort of almost word by word repeats the formal challenge which was lodged by the prime minister. So what, what can they do? Well, they can do what they do best. That is, they can lie. And they already started lying. So Prime Minister Morawiecki at one of the uh, press conferences and also in his speech in Strasbourg, I think it was, or in Brussels, after the judgment said, look, 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 it's a purely interpretive judgment. You know, It says that, no, these articles still are valid, but they cannot be understood in a way which undermines uh, su uh, supremacy of Polish law. But that's not what the, gov what the, what the tribunal says. You know, if you read carefully the judgment, uh, then you'll see, and by the way, we still don't have reasons for the judgment, but we have a judgment, the operative parts. You see it, it's not an interpretive judgment. It just says that some articles of the Treaty of European Union are not binding, are not valid in Poland within certain scope because they breach the principle of primacy of Polish constitution over any other law. So, you know, legally speaking, they have no good face-saving solution. Politically, of course, much will depend on what will be the judgment in mid-February uh, mid of the Court of Justice about the challenge to the regulation, uh, to the conditionality regulation recovery funds. These things are mutually connected because, uh, because uh, the judgment, the so-called judgment in Poland was taken in view of the fact that uh, the uh, that the recovery fund may be denied to Poland and to Hungary for reasons of the conduct of these states under the rule of law, and the Polish Constitutional Tribunal tried very meekly to say, "Well, you can do it because our law uh, prevails." But this whole idea of the primacy of the uh, Polish constitutional law over such values as the rule of law uh, is just nonsensical. So, you know, all I can say, I'm so happy it is not my problem. Although it is my problem as a Polish citizen, as a, as a Pope. Now we have two uh, final questions on the role of the EU, but we're moving into um, slightly more political um, territory. 
Um, the first one is from Anna Maria Zolberg, who says she's a retired economist and LSE fan, which of course we um, love. Um, now she's asking, given Hungary's veto power um, in the EU, um, can the EU exert any real power to bring about a reversal of peace policies? Maybe we can um, ask this question a slightly more broader way. What is the role of Hungary in the EU political uh, process? And um, related to this, um, Brian uh, Gannon, who is one of our students, asks, um, something which he describes as a geopolitical question quite rightly. How, in your opinion, will an expansionist Russia affect uh, pieces calculus vis-a-vis -vis its relationship with the EU? You've mentioned the um, crisis on the Belarus border. There is a crisis in Ukraine um, pending. Um, is it likely to lead to some rapprochement or at least to moderation in tone and fact, or do you think it will not um, have any effect at all? Okay. Uh, now, when it comes to Hungary, starting from very specific legal issue, its veto power doesn't count for all that much. It counts for one single matter, and that is one aspect of Article 7 procedure. That is the, the suspension of uh, rogue member states voting rights in the council. There indeed, Hungary may block such a decision about Poland, just as Poland can block such a decision about Hungary. But as things stand now, it's only Article 7, Section 1, that is this uh, paragraph which applies to some sort of symbolic denunciation, declaration of the risk of breach. Uh, which is at stake. And here the veto of Hungary is neither here nor there because you need only a qualified majority. Uh, so, so this is, if you like, a lawyer's response. But of course, a broader issue is that we now start finding some sort of solidarity of authoritarians, of populist authoritarians within the EU, and that may be a real danger for the rest of the EU. I would say it's almost an existential danger because there may be a serious copycat uh, phenomenon. We already see Slovenia, which is very much politically speaking in the same boat as, as Hungary and Poland, even though Slovenia has not seen any of these deep institutional deformations that Poland and Hungary has seen. Uh, so uh, so this, is, this is a very serious matter. Now, let me say that in the long term, I do not believe in a particularly effective negative role of any of the authoritarian international now in Europe because authoritarians are at the same time nationalistic. So there is an in, inner paradox of authoritarian populists building some supranational coalitions because in the end they will look after their own interests. And we already could see, you know, when uh, Poland uh, and in particular Prime Minister Morawiecki in a very inept way keeps trying to build some alliance with Orban and with Salvini and with Le Pen Marine Le Pen and with Vox, but I mean, this, the, 
you know, these are grotesque behavior. So Salvini doesn't come to one of the meetings because he's upset about something. Marine Le Pen doesn't sign the condemnation of Russia on Ukraine because she gets money from Putin, etc. I mean, these, and, and look, Oh, in the day when Morawiecki spectacularly goes to Kiev to give support to Ukrainian government, Orban is in Moscow giving support to, uh, to, to Putin. I mean, these people each look their own uh, about their own electorate, and these electorates are, are different. So fortunately, their capacity for a joint action is very limited, which doesn't, doesn't undermine the fact that, as I had said before, Orban has been much more shrewd uh, within the EU than Poles. You know, he never went into such a frontal assault upon the principles of the EU. For many years until recently, he was his party was part of the EPP even rather than those marginal fringe groups uh, of what they are called radicals and no no moderates. I, I forgot even what they are called. You know they don't they don't count after all. You know uh, and uh, you know and he, and and you know and to the judgments of constitutional uh, of the Court of Justice, he would say yes and then take one step forward, two step backwards. Polish rulers don't know how to do it, and which, which is strange, but they don't. So, you know, there is not too much possibility of synergy that we have to be too worried about. Now, to, to Brian's point, expansionist Russia vis-a-vis uh, -vis peace. Now, I on this one, I rather trust peace, that they are anti-Russian. They are, as they like to say, almost genetically anti-Russian. And I think they, they are anti-Russian in good faith. But then uh, the fact that Morawiecki goes to Madrid and meets all this by and large pro-Putin uh, West European right-wing radicals already, you know, makes you wonder. So leaving this sort of political issue to one side, I think that indeed expansionism of Russia uh, is a very big threat to European uh, Union. Uh, but at the same time, this is the sort of threat that may, and I hope will, will unify it. You know, uh, and not just European Union, but also European Union in this particular issue, may be in tandem with the UK. In fact, the UK may, may, be, may provide much stronger support for anti not anti-Russian, anti-Putin policies in Europe than, for example, Germany. So there is now talk about this new format, Poland, UK, someone else forgot, you know, in creating a common policy vis-a-vis -vis the aggression, which has sort of started now at a more variable and hybrid way of Russia uh, against Ukraine. So, you know, as, as always in the EU, any next crisis may be uh, a reason for certain solidification for, for strengthening of the EU. That's what I hope.
My colleague, uh, Martin Laughlin, um, says he's reading uh, Mark Tashnet and Boyan Bugaric's book, um, which is out this month, Power to the People, um, also warmly uh, recommended to everybody um, who's interested in this topic. Um, and the two of them argue that Poland is not yet Hungary, that the Polish government has not yet dismantled all the bulwarks of the rule of law, and that Poland is an unfinished version of authoritarian populism. Now, Martin asks, um, your presentation would seem to reject that analysis. Is that correct? Well, in many ways, Martin, uh, Hungary is indeed much deeper authoritarian than Poland. Uh, for instance, when it comes to the control and suppression of independent private media. That's the, that's the first aspect. When it comes to control and suspension of independent NGOs, that's the second aspect. When it comes to basically non-existence of any vocal independent judges, that's the third aspect. Uh, and the, in non-existences of independent ombudsman, that's maybe the fourth aspect. And in the much higher symbiosis between political power and financial oligarchs, which really make it a post-communist mafia state, as Balint Magyar in his famous book shows. So in many ways, yes, Hungary is much closer to this, if you like, complete authoritarian model. And most importantly, something that I should not forget, in complete deformation of the electoral system, which makes the victory of the anti-Orban coalition much less likely than it would have been the case in Poland. So that, you know, in, as Kim Lane Schepele once wrote in, in, in Hungary now, under the new electoral system, even the, if the opposition wins, it loses because of the combined things about gerrymandering, about the change of the composition of the parliament, about change of the electoral process, just one, uh, one uh, uh, round, and most importantly, so-called replacement of the electorate, where suddenly you've got lots of pro-Fidesz voting Hungarian living in Romania, uh, and anti-Orban Vo Hungarian voters say in your UK can only go to London and Glasgow only, only had two places to go to vote and they can't vote by correspondence. So, you know, so there are, this, this is a very, very comprehensive package which basically completely upset, upsets the level playing field. And there's no wonder that in Freedom House uh, uh, ranking, when it comes to uh, the de facto opportunities of the opposition to win, Hungary has two out of four score, while Poland has four out of four score. But there are some aspects which are more uh, disturbing in Poland than in Hungary, although admittedly they are on balance much less important. For example, in Poland, the entire constitutional tribunal has been captured, entire, 100%, while in uh, Hungary, you still have some so-called old judges, which are not urban judges. You know, he just packed the court with his uh, loyalists, so he has majority. 
And so the Constitutional Tribunal in Hungary hasn't done such outrageous thing, uh, uh, things as it has done in Poland. But by and large, I agree with my friends, uh, Boyan and Mark, that, uh, that Hungary is much, unfortunately, much further in this trajectory towards authoritarianism. And it is reflected also in all credible rankings such as Freedom House, VDEM, or the Economist rankings. And all the okay. best to you, Martin. <laughs> Now, the beauty of uh, events like these is that we, um, we can get immediate responses or comments uh, uh, from people around the world. Now, Boyan Bugaric has uh, just, uh, just joined us in the chat and he says that unlike Fides, pieces more fractious, has a smaller minority, a uh, majority, sorry, and above all, has repeatedly shown itself to be incompetent in its attempts to consolidate authoritarianism. Would you agree, Wojciech? Well, look, uh, thank you. We sometimes, we people say that sometimes the best thing about our authoritarians is that they are so inept and chaotic that in Poland, really authoritarians have no much chances, you know, so, and, 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 and Orban is smarter. On the other hand, Boyan, when you look at the situation at the opposition, which after all is a very important other side of the political landscape, in uh, Hungary, we now have, I hope, a truly unified opposition between the coming elections. And even with all that I've said about how completely distorted the uh electoral system is at least they now including Jobbik, which some years ago was unthinkable they now present a unified front in poland if there was a truly unified front in the elections of 2019 and also presidential election in 2020 we would have a uh, peace in the minority and we would have uh, do that, lose the election. So much of the problems about Poland is about the incapacity of the opposition to realize sort of first things first, you know, the program dissensus or, 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 or disagreements are secondary towards the fundamental purpose of, uh, of uh, overturning the uh, rule of Kaczynski, just as you had in Israel, where the opposition came to the idea that the uh, overwhelming uh, principle, uh, sort of purpose, is to overturn the rule of their prime minister. And then they can start disagreeing about them once they once they win. Unfortunately, in Poland, we don't have that situation. And for all sorts of reasons, which are a good topic for another conversation, we have a constantly divided opposition. And they, you know, keep losing because of that. We have a fascinating um, question on historical context uh, posed by um, Robert or uh, Robert Bidleu, uh, who's a reader at Swansea. Um, 
uh, he's saying um, the illiberal programs of peace and Fides have mostly been presented as reactions against the alleged incompleteness of the revolutions of 1989. To what extent do you think that they are deeper throwbacks to the Piłsudski and Horthy regimes of the interwar years or the incompleteness of the revolutions of 1918 and 1919? Look, I think that appeals to Piłsudski in the case of Poland and to Horthy in the case of, of Hungary are more or less of purely rhetorical character. They are not used that much, that, that often, really. I would say that uh, in Poland, when people appeal to those classical figures of the interwar period, whether to Piłsudski or to Dmowski, it is basically to mark some sort of symbolic uh, attachments, but they don't have much um, actually uh, effect. Obviously, the situation of post-1989, whether these revolutions were incomplete or complete, uh, is much more serious. But you know, we have to think about in what ways those revolutions were indeed incomplete. In one way, obviously, they were because they both uh, originated from roundtable compromise. And any compromise, by definition, must be incomplete, because if it were complete, it wouldn't be a compromise. The other party would have to fully surrender. So in this purely political sense, it may be said it was incomplete. Some people were frustrated. Some people were upset. Some people didn't get all they wanted. And they keep this grudge until now, you know, which is, of course, ridiculous, but they do because this is human psychology. On the other hand, when you look at the real issues, how on earth can one say, I'm not saying that you say, but people whom you are referring to, how can you say that the revolutions in Poland and in Hungary were incomplete? Now, take Poland, but, but on these issues, it's exactly the same as in Hungary pre-2010, that is before the return of Orban to power. We have had a complete political democracy with a strong constitution, with plurality of parties, with alternation in the rule, with one exception of the civic platform. Uh, so uh, when, when it ruled two consecutive, one, two consecutive status, it, may, it made at least the minimalist, if you like, principles of political democracy of Adam Przeworski. You know, the democracy is a state when parties lose elections. And parties kept losing elections in Poland. And you had freedom of speech. And you have relatively impartial public media, etc., etc., And all basic civil and political rights. So politically speaking, the revolution was complete. Economically speaking, it is now a market economy. You, one may have various, and I also do have various objections to the sort of liberal capitalism that was established there. But the one thing you cannot say is that it's a complete reversal to state planning, central economy, which you had before. And there was a complete reversal of the traditional alliances. Poland is no longer part of the Soviet Union or Russian empire or Russian sphere of influence. Uh, 
is a member of NATO and the EU, and so is, is Hungary. Now, what is, what is missing there? What would render these revolutions even more complete? What do you have to put ex-communists in jail? Well, you can it. What will it do? What will it do to the, you know, to the democracy and so on and the, and the human rights in, in these countries? So, sorry, I don't buy the, that argument at all. Um, we're coming to the final um, part of the lecture. So I want us to reflect a little bit on uh, the future, on the things that might be awaiting us. And we have uh, two interesting questions here. Um, one from Philip, uh, Philip Dankiewicz, who's at UCL, um, who's asking, um, do you think the current uh, government is likely to either amend uh, the law to be able to manipulate or influence the next general election results um, or uh, act unlawfully during the next general elections in Poland. Um, and then from a slightly different angle, um, Anthony is asking, which I'm sure is a, a question that will interest many um, Brits and Poles living in the UK. Um, what impact do you think um, might the return of many Poles from the UK to Poland have? Do you see that changing the political constellation um, uh, domestically? Yeah, about the second issue, I must say, I really don't know. I don't know well enough about the life of Poles in the UK. <clears throat> I have only the most superficial sort of stereotypes that probably the, la the most of Poles who have immigrated into the UK or moved, because we are not talking really about immigration with this sort of sense of permanence, who moved to the UK and to Ireland uh, after, uh, after the fall of communism, that most of them have liberal democratic pro-Western values. These are educated people, people who were raised or who raised their kids in a truly democratic liberal uh, demo, uh, uh, constitutional system because it has a strong constitution even if not unwritten and you know they must have socialized and absorbed those values so of course if there is a sufficient number of people who move back to Poland they will bring those values with them uh, but, but this is a stereotype I have I have no you know statistical evidence for it I can just say I hope that it will happen when it comes to Philip's question about Polish government trying to amend, change, and manipulate the elections, let me start by saying that I have zero trust in them, zero trust. They can do and will do anything to win because too much is at stake for them. Not just their wealth, not just their power, but for many of them, their immunity from criminal prosecution. Uh, so they all do anything. And unfortunately, they already have legal instruments for controlling electoral process because of two combined things. First, the electoral commissions have been completely restructured on the new electoral law, and they are not uh, now chaired by judges in districts. You know, they are not chaired by judges, but by people appointed by the indirectly, but in the end, by the Minister of 
interior and administration. So these are administrators and they may be completely uh, subjected to control. And secondly, there is this new chamber of the constitution of the Supreme Court, chamber for public affairs and extraordinary review. But in the, one of the roles is to pronounce on the dis, electoral disputes. And they are completely 100% appointed by parliamentary majority. So they are completely subordinated to the party. So the instruments are there, but of course there are counter instruments and that is public scrutiny, social control, mainly by Polish NGOs, civil society and opposition parties, but also by external observers from the EU, from OECD, from Council of Europe, etc. And uh, I think that this may be very powerful counter instruments. The system, the, the, if you like, electoral system, apart from the instruments, is reasonably democratic. There hasn't been any gerrymandering like in, in uh, Hungary. And the distortion of result, which gives premium to the strongest parties is something that is, you know, part of the PR system in many uh, Western democracies. So, you know, so the, if you like the mechanism of converting the raw vote into seats in the lower chamber in the Senate is okay. It is only possibilities of abusing the control over who counts votes. And as we know, you know, uh, Comrade Stalin said, it really doesn't matter who votes. What matters is who counts votes, you know? And, you know, and th that's where we may have problems. Again, zero trust for the government, but very high trust in civil society and scrutiny over the process. Before we end, let's, let me ask you one final question, which many people in different forums have asked in the chat. So I'm just combining these. Um, are you hopeful that things um, will turn around for the better in the short or medium term? And if so, how do you think will change come about from the inside, from the outside? Is it going to be an economic recession that will make the current government lose an election or the resurgence of a popular movement or the intervention of the EU, anything or, or all of these? Yeah, thank you. Well, that, that, that is, of course, the most important thing. Uh, and I'm optimistic because I have to be, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, most of us are deep down optimistic because optimism equals hope and we can't live without hope. Uh, I believe that speaking concretely, the only change in Poland may come through the elections not through the revolution, not through people's power, and of course, not through imposition of democracy from the outside, only through the election. I mean, I don't exclude that sometimes democratic uh, change has to be brought about by revolution, by sort of public uh, meetings and by, by the society, which basically makes it impossible for the government to govern. But it's not the case of Poland. A, because we still have, as I had just said, proper, at least potentially proper electoral system. B, because there is a relatively sizable support for peace. 
And these people cannot be ignored and they are our co-citizens. They are not majority numerically speaking, but they are strong plurality. Okay. So uh, it may come only through the elections. The next elections will be in 2023. And uh, you know, uh, there's no other path to democracy than through these elections. I don't believe that there will be snap elections before. Kaczynski wouldn't repeat his big mistake of 2007 when he completely miscalculated the situation, miscalculated the situation. Uh, so it may come through the election, but of course election is not just the election. It's everything that precedes it. And therefore there has to be, there are certain, okay, political scientists and theorists of democracy have put together certain expertise about how Democrats in hybrid systems in countries which are not democratic, but not completely authoritarian, what favors democratic victory? One of them is that there should be strong electoral turnout that on balance, the high turnout works in favor of the Democrats. Uh, secondly, that there should be a strong coalition, preferably one party, but if not strong coalition of all democratic forces. And thirdly, that there should be credible program which fundamentally converts the negative appeal, we are against the current government and the positive appeal. That is, we are against the current government because of this, this and that. And this must be positive. People do not normally go to vote only to protest, they like to go to vote for a positive platform. Now, these are three things which must happen at the party level in Poland. But that has to be also prepared by strong civil society pressure. And here I'm relatively, relatively optimistic. I must say, I must disclose that I'm on governing bodies of two main or big Polish uh, NGOs, Institute of Public Affairs and the Helsinki Foundation. And I see from the inside how much work uh, we've been doing, uh, notwithstanding official distaste by the, by the government, and also the external pressure from the EU. And I just said, I'm relatively sanguine about them, and also from the Council of Europe. And again, not in the sense that democracy will be brought into Poland from Brussels, Luxembourg, or Strasbourg, but that these institutions may provide strong support, strong assets, in particular argumentative assets uh, to Democrats in Poland. So that if we can tell Poles, look, EU really criticizes us for what we are doing and we become sort of sick men or sick women of Europe. You know, that may have effect on many people who don't want to have the sense of shame or embarrassment you know, when they go to France or Spain for holiday and say, you are, we are from Poland and people start to look at you as, you know, someone, an, a European of second category. So the, it is through these indirect mechanisms of providing assets to Polish Democrats of increasing the costs, but mainly political costs for the authoritarian rulers to carry on their uh, policy that the Western uh, European 
And also now, of course, the US administration, which is very important. It has been for Polish democracy, the uh, victory of Biden was huge, huge, uh, huge uh, asset. And just think about the new ambassador of uh, the US in Poland, uh, uh, Mr. Mark Brzeziński. So, uh, you know, all these may create certain critical mass, but everything in the end will be decided at the election. Boom. Unfortunately, we have to stop now. Um, thank you very, very much, Wojciech, for agreeing uh, to come to speak to us and for giving us this um, important um, update on Poland's constitutional and political situation. Um, next time, we hopefully have you over in the traditional way here on campus. Um, thanks also to everybody who tuned in. Have a lovely evening and see you next time. And thank you very much, Jan. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.